Hi there, this is Jerry Ellis, host of Talking Apes. As a filmmaker, I'm often perplexed at how to get folks to fully appreciate the magic of apes and primates. Over the past two seasons, we've begun reaching out beyond the world of primate science to chat with folks who are looking at primates through a very different lens. I found the complex and often twisted story of apes and monkeys at the hands of humans over the past couple of centuries is nearly impossible to tell from a single perspective. It takes many storytellers. Some of those share an angle that is frankly quite challenging and even more difficult to look at. When we think of apes and primate photography, we often think of steamy mosquito-filled jungles of Borneo and Equatorial Africa, at least I do. I love those friggin' places, and I'm always in a hurry to get back there and do more filming. But for many primates, they're born into and live out their lives far from their intended natal worlds. My next guest has spent years searching for our primate kin in some of the most unlikely, tiny, century-old, time-forgotten places. Her images are powerful portraits of primates seen in stark contrast to the lush and vibrant forests we imagine them to live. I'm joined this time on Talking Apes by photographer Anne Berry in a conversation about her book, Behind Glass, an intimate and very personal portfolio of primates. And now my conversation with Anne Berry. Welcome to Talking Apes. It's great to have you. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. A lot of our conversation today is going to be about a book you have done called Behind Glass. And there's so many questions I have about it. Um, in the intro, I, you know, I talked about the book a little bit and it, and it's filled with these amazing pictures of primates. Amazing, amazing. And, um, and as Jane Goodall said, um, disturbing and uh, which we'll get into as well in a minute. But I wanted to start with something that I read online uh, about the book, and it, and I'll I'll just go ahead and read it. It says it's Barry's goal to motivate people to feel compassion for the primates and an obligation to protect them. The emotion behind the images. How do you use that to motivate people to feel an obligation to protect them? And I would love to just start with your thoughts on that. Oh, okay. Well, I'm not an activist, but I do care. So instead, I use art. It, it adds to the voice of science. It adds another dimension, which is the dimension of emotion. And I know these pictures make people feel emotion, which leads to empathy and compassion and a willingness to help. And what I hope is that it, what it did for me when I visited these primates was made me more interested in their habitats and what was happening to them on the planet. And I hope that the people seeing these primates in the book does the same thing. Tell, tell me about the first time that you had that encounter, that first primate encounter. Uh, the first one was in 2009 at that small zoo in the Jardin des Plantes in Paris. And they have an orangutan and a couple of small monkeys, mangabees, I think. And so I, I took some photographs at, when I got home. I, you know, I, they just were, seemed to me to be powerful. So then I, it made me want to go back to other places where I could get the same sort of experience. So when you saw those, that, that orangutan for the first time, was, 
was it the intent was to do something around primates or was that actually no, the trigger? I wasn't doing that at the time. It really, it was, I was just traveling and, and I had a free day where I had already been to museums and I, and I just went to that, that little small zoo. Part of it was wanting something to do when I traveled. So I just thought, well, I'll go to the zoo and go to the park and, and it, I like to look at animals. Walk me through this sort of evolution of the the photography and the concern. Tell me a little bit about that connection and how that all came about between the, the you know the, the conservation side, the caring side, and and the photography. I don't have a science background. I have a master's degree in English literature and an art background. I also have an art degree, and I went to very small zoos where I could engage with the primate one-on-one usually I'd be the only person in the in the enclosure so I didn't I didn't necessarily know a lot as still not an expert but didn't know a lot about primates and so it, it made me want to learn more but I definitely had connections with the animals I was visiting and saw other people in these small zoos people that might go every day and have a um, especially if it was a orangutan or a gorilla or a chimpanzee or a bonobo, somebody might go visit that same animal every day and I could watch them engage with the animal. Uh, I was reading an interview that you had done and you talked about um, a particular um, chimpanzee and I'm trying to think of the chimpanzee's name and that chimpanzee had a little hidden toy. Can you Tell that story because I think it illustrates so well what you just were talking about. Well, that was in a very small zoo in Krefeld, Germany. And then I, I go back to that zoo every every two years. There was a lady in there who was sketching. So she saw that I was staying there. And she went and told me that she wanted to introduce me to her favorite chimpanzee. And we went over to the window that was a big window. And, and he came running from the other side of the enclosure and came over there. And she said, this is Charlie. This lady came from the United States to take your picture. Well, he looked up and he ran over and he came back with a screw. And the lady said, oh, he should not have that metal object. And she ran off to tell the zookeeper. And he posed with the screw the whole time I was taking his picture. And it wasn't until I put my camera down that he went and hid the screw again. But so you you can't he knew what he was doing. If he was going to have his portrait made, he was going to have his special object with him. What's so lovely about the the image is that he's there with this object and he's very casual with it. And that's when when apes are comfortable with you, like they don't feel like it's going to be stolen from them or taken from them. They're very casual with it. And and they they sometimes will even share it. It's when they think. You know, it's a keeper showing up or a caretaker going to take it from them that all of a sudden it becomes a, you know, you're not getting your hands on this thing for for anything. But it's a really lovely photograph from from that standpoint. I wanted to ask you about the images in the sense that you traveled around. These are much smaller zoos. Um, They felt very claustrophobic in many cases. They felt like... they were very tiny. I mean, it almost was like I was. I felt like I was looking at images of primates in zoos from the 1800s or early 1900s. It, it, I wondered about something that Jane Goodall. It, it, 
she writes uh, a small piece in the in the in the front material of the book, and she said these images are poignant and deeply disturbing, and they are somebody, especially somebody who spent a lot of time around primates. I, they are they're very poignant, and they are deeply disturbing. And as I I shared some of the images with other people, and. I, there were sort of two reactions that I, I noticed as I was watching people I shared your images with. And one was this curiosity to really stare at the images before moving to the next, a real patience with looking at the images. The other reaction was, I, I guess, and that would be the poignant side. And then the other reaction was the deeply disturbing side. And I had a few people who went through two or three images, then shut the book and just said, I can't look at these anymore. How as an, as an artist, a creator, t- creating images that move people without repelling them? Oh, that is something that I hear from people a lot. And it's usually people that say that they cannot go to a zoo. But um, to me, I'm trying to show how beautiful I'm trying to do the portrait in a respectful way, the way you would do a portrait of a person. And I didn't show the enclosure. So you don't really know if it's a zoo where they're in a in one of those enclosures where they can't go outside or especially the small, the, not the not the apes, but the monkeys. A lot of times they have a, a very big enclosure to go outside. But where I was taking those pictures was when they wanted to come in to the little small place. And and a lot of those zoos are as old as are from the 19th century, you know, but they've modernized them, you know, like the old monkey house is a taper house now, and they've built a new enclosure for the monkeys. One thing about those zoos, too, is is some of the primates that live there are in their 40s. Now they wouldn't do what they did 40 years ago, but they're still tasked with caring for those old primates for the rest of their lives. And in this zoo in Crefell, they built an outdoor enclosure, but those the gorillas who had been living in the indoor enclosure their whole life wouldn't don't want to go outside. So how do we take these images, which are incredibly powerful, and is is a book the best way to share these images? Is it the best way to talk to an audience? Well, besides the book, I, I do exhibitions. So I think maybe a combination, because the book is, is the most accessible thing, because, you, you know, it's small. And one reason I wanted it to be small it's easy to carry around and it's intimate. And I only put one picture on a spread so that when you're looking at that, it's not too much in your face at one time. When you're looking with at that primate, you're sort of like this, maybe trying to replicate the experience I had. You're just sitting there with that one primate and having a little connection or seeing that there is a connection, that we can have connections with animals. And um, when I do a... An exhibition, I usually put together some some audience interaction, like some questions and some and I share the status on the red list or and put together if it's in a um area where students are coming, I put together something where they could tie it into their science program or where students could write about the primate. And in addition, if they're photography students, I do some things about 
questions about photography, like I might, um, in, in the exhibition, I printed one as a wet plate, as an amber type, and one as a photogravure, and one as a silver gelatin, and I printed a little bitty one and a big one so that people could see how you have to make choices as a photographer when you're going to exhibit something. But it has been exhibited uh, in Spain and England and many places in the United States. Has it been exhibited in the places where you actually created the images? It has not. And that's something that I've been disappointed in that I that I've tried to connect. Sometimes I don't have any special access when I go to these zoos and I don't usually speak the language. And I don't when I have written them to ask them, even in one case, if they wanted to use one of my images as a fundraiser. But um, I don't get a response. I do get a response if I send a picture of a, say, a gorilla to their Facebook page and say, can you tell me this, the name of this? Because I always take pictures of the little pictures when I when I, and then I go home and try to usually I can tell which one it is. But if I can't, then I, I like to be correct. I, I send them the um, and they I, they have answered me that way, but they don't ever want me to come speak to them. I just don't. You know, even the um, like the zoo in Krefeld, I've tried to talk to the friends of the zoo and I thought I would get a response from them, but I did not. Well, I'd like to dig in um, to the photographs themselves in the process. You mentioned there was a lot of patience there. They look like they took an enormous, enormous amount of patience because they look like portraits. They look like these very intimate personal portraits of these animals. And, and, I, and that's not something you just walk in and, and go click, 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 and you walk away with. Um, talk, talk to me a little bit about that process, the, the kind of patience that it took. And, and then I actually want to talk about a couple of specific images that seem to, to me anyway, to express that. And I'd love to hear what your thoughts are on those. I think that patience is probably one of my skills as I am a patient am patient and I, I've trained horses and I'm very patient with do it, you know, working with a young horse. So I would maybe sit there, nobody was in there. I might walk around in a circle and come back. But I usually spent the day, I would just kind of come in and out of the of the room. Well, one of the a couple of the images in a couple of the images in particular that I, I wanted to ask you about, it almost appears as though the camera was there without you. It almost it's plate number thirteen and it's plate number fourteen in the book. The reason that those two images are so interesting to me is that they aren't just of the primate. In fact, you barely see the primate at all. Each of them involves another animal that's in there. And it doesn't look like the kind of image that you would normally think of when you think of a monkey house. So in in about not even a quarter of the images, but in some of the images, I added a window frame to give it to give it a, a, a new narration. And these are the these are two of those that I, I wanted to, especially with the one plate 14 where the little chickens, he's looking out of the window and there are two chickens on the windowsill. I wanted to make it make people stop and look at the images and wonder about them. And it kind of gave it a sense of being in a domestic setting instead of a zoo, both of them. And just um, 
actually the one with the mice is a picture is an image from the zoo, but it wasn't where the you know that primate. So the fact that the picture of the primate that I took it, the primate's behind glass. It's easy to just montage a, a, a frame around it, and sometimes I did that. Just well, the, the window makes a, a helps to frame the image. You know, get it, even if it's the the actual window that was there. With your permission, we'll have some of these images um, in in the blog posts that we do, so people can refer to them. I know it's kind of tricky in a podcast to talk about images that people can't see. Let's start with. I mean, it's called behind glass, and you just mentioned you know, these layers of glass. What what is significant to you about that, as a both as an artist and and somebody trying to make a commentary on on these primates. Um, I'm using the glass as a metaphor for how much distance we've put between ourselves and nature. The glass in particular is really interesting as I started looking through the images in the book because it made me rethink, you know, like when I was a small small boy and going um there I had two encounters with gorillas that really um kind of maybe had a lot to do with my trajectory in life and working around apes and primates. And both of them were behind glass. And so no matter what happened, there was, there was, if, if I put my hand up and they put their hand up, there was always still a barrier. It was like this, there was always still the separation that quite frankly, I couldn't understand. Uh, I think as a, as a child, it just seemed, I didn't understand why there had to be this barrier between the two of us. There's a lot of other sensory things that that glass creates and and that that was something that struck me in the images too you, you're not going to smell the animal in the same way you're not going to smell the place that it is and and all those kinds of things it's definitely part of the photograph because uh, it, in the photographs that I've taken where there's not glass you know like I um when, when I was in Cape Town I went with uh this with someone who runs a foundation called baboon matters and it's um, a baboon conservation foundation, and they're trying to get people to understand that baboons aren't innately aggressive. It's because tourists feed them or people. And so we hiked up in the mountains and we're right at the baboon troops. And sometimes the we didn't go up to them, but if the little ones would come up to us, then the parents would come closer. But those pictures are are completely different. I could not have put one of those in this book. And, it, and the glass does create kind of that you can tell it's there even even in the ones without the window frame and it, you can tell and it makes them a little bit even more dreamy. First of all, I'm shooting at a wide aperture with a vintage lens, but second of all, that glass sometimes it gives a distortion or it, you know it. So it contributes to the style of the picture, which is kind of pictorial, which suggests. You know, it's a little nostalgic, but it, to me, it's suggesting loss. They are very nostalgic. Um, the images are very reminiscent to me of the the wet plates, the um, the collodions that you process that you would have, you know, you would think of in the the early part of photography from the eighteen fifties to the late eighteen hundreds that 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 were done on glass plates or done on metal plates, um, and 
And most often, those pictures at at that time were were taken in sitting rooms, and they were very portrait like. And these images have that same, not just in in the look of them, and you can describe the technique f- for us, but but also in the feel of them, in the sense that they look like these come in sit portraits. And I, I think that probably has a lot to do with your patience and sitting with the, the animals as well. Well. I wanted them to be a serious, beautiful portrait, not a not a document of the primate's condition in that particular zoo. And I do, uh, I I did a project with Twenty First Editions. What's more, it's a portfolio. They've made seventeen of them, and one of them's in the National Gallery. But they they market them to uh, special collections of uh, museums or university libraries. So they only made seventeen. And it, the whole project's handmade. That the twenty first editions made made the project. The books handmade. The papers handmade. Letter pressed. It contains a folio of platinum palladium prints. All the prints in the books are platinum palladium. But we put two um, amber types in there, which is a, a t- it's what you're just talking about. It's wet plate collodion on glass. And it's and they're on clear glass, so they have to have a, a a black surface behind them. They're in a little case with black to to make them show up. But so that's interesting that you said that about because I did I do see them produced that way too. And that the the technique I'm using is kind of an old technique. I have to hand focus. That's another reason I have to be patient because if they're moving around a lot, I'm trying to I'm trying to focus my lens if they're going back and forth. And I'm using a an old vintage lens that is for a medium format camera, but I'll put it on a 35 millimeter and the, it, with the adapter lets me tilt the plane of focus. So I've some in some of them you can tell it's I'm just trying to lead the viewer's eye into the eye of the primate, which is the thing in focus, hopefully the sweet spot and then everything else is, you know, kind of goes off from there. I have a couple of favorites from the book, and but I'd love to hear what yours are. I mean, and and maybe you could describe one or two of them that you just think maybe the story behind or maybe the, the image itself somehow just resonates and continues to to be present in, in your own mind. Well, I love the one that's 42. It's a gorilla. People sometimes talk about their expressions, and I know that their expressions aren't the same as our expressions. So when people say, oh, that little colobus monkey looks so sad, he's not really sad. He's inquisitive. He's trying, He's looking at me. But this um, gorilla, she seems to be making hand signals or something. And she what, did several different ones. That was just the one I, I liked the picture the best. What's interesting about it is her both of her hands are up as if you were going to say, can you hold your fists up and show me your fists? But then her her little finger on each hand is projecting out as like she just had finished a cup of tea um, <laughs> with the queen or something. Um, it's really interesting that both little fingers are up. Is there another one in here that release? Really is- um, I, I like the one of, um, it's plate 28, and it's a bonobo holding her twins. 
that one really struck me um, a great deal. And it's one of the ones I tagged that I wanted to talk to you about. But describe the situation first. Well, Chef, I learned this from reading about it, but they're the only twin bonobos in captivity. Now, bonobos don't usually have twins, and especially in captivity. But I just thought, I have a friend who has, has twin children, and she loves this picture. It just seems so... Just her expression and the way she's holding them seem so, in in a way, calm but contemplative. It it is the way she's holding them. I think is part of of what is so so special about the the image. I, I guess because you don't see twins very often, and they're both more involved in each other and what's going on than they they're not looking at the camera at all. And she seems to almost be staring past the camera. She seems to be staring out. And it's really easy to anthropomorphize at this point, I think, and and say, you know, she's staring out at a world that, you know, these two twins will never know or or a world she remembers or whatever, Um, especially bonobos. um, And because bonobos, um, for those of you who are not familiar with bonobos, what a bonobo looks like a, a bonobo or they used to be called pygmy chimps are a, a smaller version of a chimpanzee that live only on the south side of the Congo river in um, the Congo basin democratic Republic of Congo. They have much less hair on their bodies than chimpanzees do. And they're much uh, sort of more, I don't know, graceful bodies in some ways. And so they tend to look very human like, anyway but so they have less they don't have the they have a much fleshier face and lighter face and stuff and so when you look at her um she really does look like a mother with two young twins and just contemplating some other world this new project that you um we, we just we alluded to a moment ago with 21st century of these portfolios why why that project how did that evolve Oh, it evolved of me researching or, or deciding I wanted to do a book and that I had enough images to do a book. And then I met um, the editor of 21st Edition, Stephen Hallberry, and he wanted to do this project with me. So it's I took about a year or a year and a half off of of trying to do a smaller book that was more accessible to do to because I had that opportunity to do that project with them, which all their work is it's like that. It's all their work is a work of art. The whole, the whole thing. Congratulations! I mean, you should be really proud of being a part of that. I mean, there's some remarkable f- photographers and artists that they have have worked with. I thought what was interesting about it when I was doing a little bit of research on it, though, was the fact that it was linked to Darwin, a book which Darwin did that m- many people are would not be familiar with. I mean, most people uh, know about origin on the origin of species, his first book in, in 1859, and then the descent of man uh, a few years, about a decade later. But he did a third book called the expression of the emotions of man and animals. How fitting for these images that you have created to be linked to that, because that book was remarkable in a couple of ways. One was Darwin's, wanting to link expressions to a more uh, a, a stronger biological background rather than a cultural background so looking at things like happiness and sadness and fear and and 
those things through facial expressions, which you can see in all of these images that you have created in the, in the book. But the other thing was that that, that book was one of the first books that had photographs in it. And it was, it became a kind of a, a milestone book in the publishing industry because it actually had photographs that quite frankly, they look in style a lot like the photographs that you took. Did, was that your decision to, no, to have so, Darwin's involvement? No. So 21st editions, their, their subtitle is the art of the book and everything concerned with that book they had control over and they picked that text and Collier Brown wrote the introduction and it's, it's long and it's really interesting. And I was really impressed with how he talked about Darwin and how he managed to cup, you know, segue to my photography, but uh, they, they chose the materials and the, the type of that there were going to be platinum palladium prints and, and they had, you know, expert people do it, you know, the, person make the box and the people that made the book that bound the book picked the materials so it was just it was a surprise to me to see it in a way we we talked a little bit about which um images were gonna they were gonna be used because but I would that wasn't my decision either you know they picked the sequence they picked which images so i, I thought it it was really interesting and it was a privilege to work with them and it was interested to see what they created out of my work i guess i want to end with a couple of images from the book um that i wanted to talk to you about one is is the second to last image in a, in in the book and i i just thought it was an interesting it's i think plate 49 it's a Vapatis monkey, and it almost could have easily, to me, been the last picture of the book. It it almost looks like the Patis monkey is looking up through a hole in the world at some other place, some other world that it it's dreaming of or would want to get to. And and the light is just cresting off uh, a bit off of its if its face. And in a way, he is because he's looking up at the skylight. And and that's one of the when I go would go to a zoo, I didn't know what the conditions were going to be for and sometimes they weren't very good for photography and sometimes they were great. So this was not very nice because they if they have the ceiling is, you know, if the natural light can come in through the ceiling, it's it makes it it very nice. And the fact that he was looking up at it and it illuminates his face made a nice picture and that um that's in the barcelona zoo and that uh, monkey is an elderly monkey he was in a, a, a area that they had i guess where maybe they had removed an elderly monkey maybe he was getting picked on or something so it's the um it's like the retirement home for monkeys the other image, I, you know, I'm kind of torn between two images that i i wanted to kind of end with and one is the absolute first image in in the book, which um, I actually missed the very first time I looked through the book, and and then I saw the image in an in a portfolio article that you had done with the Guardian newspaper um, about oh I guess it was about a yearish ago or something like that, um, and it's a, it's a picture of a chimpanzee, Lulu, I think, uh -huh. yeah, I have taken a lot of portraits of 
chimps in the wild that have that same kind of such human expression that um, and they remind me of something that and I'm, I'm going to kind of just paraphrase this. But apparently when the first chimp was brought to the zoo in London in the 1800s, Queen Victoria was brought down to take a look at this thing. And she took one look at it and turned and walked away. And they were all like, what did we do wrong? And she said she got, she she basically did not want to look at any creature who looked that much like a human. And this expression of Lulu is that it really, if if there was one image, I guess, to to start the book, that just feels like if that doesn't set the stage for everything you're going to see from that point on in this, uh, in this book uh, behind glass, it, that, that seems to be the image. Can tell me a little bit about that image? Um, just, that that Lulu was a, was easy to photograph because she was uh, calm and still and and contemplative and she just seemed she would just sit there and look at me and she there actually have a lot of good portraits of her that one's the best one but you know she was a so, you know sometimes it's maybe usually the males or the younger ones they're running around and showing off and they're not they won't really sit still for very long but um i don't know it's she just seemed thought uh, like a like she was very thoughtful yeah i'd like to end there i mean that that maybe is one of the best words to end with about this book. It's it's a very thoughtful book. I really appreciate you doing creating all these images and and sharing them. I I just I go back to a question I asked you earlier about is the book the best way to do this? I you know, as somebody who creates images and then just trying to make people aware of what's happening to permit, I just want to try to it's like I'd like to take all of these and make a big, you know, open air display in the middle of, uh, you know, I'm in Portland, Oregon. I'd, I'd like to just like we have a, a center area called the square and where people traffic during lunches and stuff. And, it, you know, it's like I'd like to spread them all over that and make so that they just have to stop for a moment and, and see the images. Um, and so I'm always I'm always looking at. Stuff saying how how can we get more of the world to see this? Well, hopefully this this podcast and sharing a little bit of it with with folks and with and talking to you will help do that as well. Well, Anne, thank you so much for taking the time to to chat with with me and share this with everybody who's going to be listening to this podcast. It's it's really um, it's a love. I, I'm saying this in a weird way. It's really a lovely book. But like Jane said, it's also very poignant and very disturbing. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so, uh, but I would encourage people to to take a look. Uh, we will we'll have some stuff on our website for the podcast, and then we'll link it all to your website. Thank you again for being with us on Talking Ape. Thank you. I want to thank Ann Berry for sharing her perspective and her photographic passion for primates. You've been listening to Talking Apes, the podcast that gets to the very heart of what's happening with and to apes like us. You can find previous episodes of Talking Apes on our new website at TalkingApes.org. That's TalkingApes, one word, dot O-R-G, or on your favorite podcast app. If you have any questions for us here at Talking Apes, or you wake up in the middle of the night with a brilliant idea for a future podcast, 
You can jump out of bed, rush to your email, and send it off to us at ideas at talkingapes.org. I'd like to thank Talking Apes assistant producer Demelza Bond for all of her work helping create yet another wonderful podcast. And finally, I'd like to thank you. Talking Apes podcasts are made possible by the growing number of listeners like you. So please consider supporting Talking Apes with your tax-deductible donation via the link on our website. And most importantly, for all of those who work tirelessly every single day to protect and save great apes and their forest homes, I cannot thank you enough. I'm Jerry Ellis. Thanks for listening to Talking Apes.